This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes. People such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast, each week you'll learn from people like you that were working full time but still found the time to create a course, grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy podcast. If you are a fireman, police officer, nurse, or military, you are in the right place. I am very honored to have our guest this week, uh, Jeremy Brewer. He is a law enforcement officer for 27 years? 20. Going to 20. 20. Oh, yeah. I, I get I get all the people confused that I talk to. I talk to so many different people uh, between meeting people on a daily basis. I just want to plug that if you know anyone with a great story, it doesn't have to, they don't have to be famous. Uh, I just love great stories and uh, meeting great people. So if you know anyone with a great story that falls into one of those categories, a nurse, police officer, fireman, or military, uh, definitely send them my way and recommend them to the Hero Academy because our uh, audience loves to hear from great people and uh, just ordinary people too, just you know, regular people that are doing great things. And uh, my guest today is definitely doing some great things. We were talking about uh, computer security, and I was saying that especially where your wife works, um, you never know what geek is working there and decides to uh, send an email and then tap into your computer. So it's important to cover up your your camera. Um, if you don't close your laptop down, you want to at least flip this little thing down, which and that's what that's why I knew. I'm like, hey, I can hear you fine. You said you're that that's how I knew. I'm like, I bet you have your cover on. <laughs> and of course, of course, the cop in me is like, what are you even talking about? There's a cover <laughs> on the camera. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, flip, <laughs> you flip the co cover down. And uh, so that's the purpose of it is so that people can't tap into. Uh, they made a movie about this where a guy was stalking a woman um, through her laptop and tapping into their Wi-Fi and stuff like um, I spoke to someone who's in cybersecurity and she said, don't let people connect to your Wi-Fi. <laughs> Because once they're in there, they can get access to almost anything. Uh, she said she checks on her um, her potential boyfriends. Like she, you know, she knows if they're lying or not because, like, she she can go through all of their stuff. I'm like, you are a scary person. 
I'm like, geez, in, in law enforcement, we have laws against that. I'm just mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, but she's she's so good. She's so good. You would never know. You would never know that she tapped into your stuff. You know. (laughs) So twenty twenty years. Oh no, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I get I get a little high, like a little buzz, every single time I have one of these conversations, because, um, you know, you've been doing the good job, doing the good work, keeping up the good fight for a long time. Twenty years is respectable. I try to talk to people that have at least 20 years or more and are retired because uh, I know you probably have some amazing stories and and just some incredible life experience that's extremely valuable to a lot of people. Um, before I talk too much, let me turn it over to you and you just tell your your uh, your your life story in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll try. So, Dave, I'm the guy that would have been probably voted least likely to become a cop coming out of high school. And I don't say that because I was a bad person or that I committed crimes or anything like that, but I was, let's just say less than traditional. I wasn't an athlete. Uh, I didn't have a parent who was a cop. I wasn't going into the military. I was the guy who had piercings, crazy haircuts, and I was the lead singer of a grunge rock band. (laughs) <laughs> now, I say I use the word singer loosely because I didn't actually have any vocal talent. <laughs> but what I had was uh, I, I had stage presence. I was I was a performer. And if you look back, I mean, this is 1994. If you look back at that time, this was when bands like Nirvana and the Seattle scene where, you know, they weren't really known for their vocal ability. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was, know, more about the, it was more about the music. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my bandmates, actually, a guy named John Ingrassia, went on to become a professional musician. And he's wow. still out there rocking now. Uh, wow. he's, a, he's a blues guy and, he, and he's doing his thing. He's an instructor. And I'm, I'm very proud of him. We you ever go to any of his shows? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we talk all the time. We talk That's all cool. the time. You know, um, outside of all of that craziness of, of the band days, I, I did always want to become a firefighter. And as soon as I turned 18, like so many people, you know, who are into it, I joined the local volunteer fire department. And I was a senior in high school when I joined, you know, the volunteer fire department. So you can imagine these guys with me come in with piercings and crazy hair and being in a band. And these guys are like, what is this guy, you know? Uh-huh. But I always had a love for the fire service. And when, you know, you go back, at least here in the Northeast, when you go back to that time period, if you even wanted to be considered for the job, you had to be an EMT or a paramedic. And that's just how cutthroat the hiring process was back then. So instantly it was like, as soon as I could, uh, I took an EMT class and I was fortunate enough that as soon as I graduated, I got picked up full-time working for a professional ambulance. Now I'm 20 years old. And when you think about that, like now I'm 47 now, looking back, I'm 20 years old. And that is a lot of responsibility on a 20 year old person, right? I mean, if you think about all that trauma, all the calls, even the mundane stuff, you know, taking people to dialysis appointments and all those things. I mean, it was just such a different experience than a lot of my friends that I was hanging out with. So we would go out on a Friday night and one of my friends, his dad owned a car wash. So he was just basically clearing out change every day, not to minimize what he was doing. Right. But he was hanging yeah. out in the car wash. Another buddy of mine was a struggling stage actor. So he worked at blockbuster video 
right? How about that for a time capsule? <laughs> he was working at Blockbuster. And then another buddy was a bartender. So we would go out on a Friday night and it, you know, if you just think about what, you know, I was doing all day versus what they were doing all day. And again, it's not who's better or anything like that. It was just such a different life experience. And when they would hear me talk about it, they'd be like, man, are you kidding me? And when I look back on those days, I see it as a, both a blessing and a curse because it's a blessing in, you know, what you're exposed to at such a young age, you, you learn grow up, about you trauma grow up very quickly. You yeah. grow up very fast with that level of responsibility. And I say a curse because you also learn at a very early age how to bury trauma. And, you know, I've been removed from the EMS world now for 20 years, almost 21 years, and I could still bring myself up on those calls. I could still laugh it up at the guy. Oh, remember back in 1998 when this happened and you could put yourself right back on that scene with the smells, with everything, you know? So I think, you know, in, in so many ways as it was good, it also set the stage on how to bury trauma. Mm. So I always thanked those EMTs every single time I went to a call. I was so extremely grateful. Uh, here on Long Island, the majority of the EMTs are volunteer. So it's uh, like, that's not like another level of those people really want to be there and they're there for the right reasons. Like it's, are most of them in Connecticut uh, paid or volunteer? There's a lot of volunteer. Most of the, the cities or semi cities call them have paid services or the paid services out here will cover six or seven rural towns. But there still are volunteer ambulance services out here. How well. many years were you riding the bus? I was there for six years full time. Six years. All in all that time, just like my coworkers working for the ambulance, everybody wants to be a fireman, right? That's a yeah. stepping stone. Yep, nobody, yep. nobody starts working for American Medical Response or whatever company might be out in your world. You know, nobody starts working for them and says, I'm 20 and out, right? No, it's right. I mean, you know, it's a stepping stone. So of course you're competing with all your coworkers for these jobs. Right. So I was taking fire tests, uh, all over the state of Connecticut, you know, trying, I got a question for you. Yeah. Why are so many EMTs out of shape? <laughs> have you ever noticed that? Oh, I have. Yes, I have. And, and I, I would say, I would say it's higher than the general population. <laughs> like, like if you take a segment of EMTs and you just look at them in general, like you, like I think you and I were talking about the PT exam and the fact that we could still pass at our at our age. We're, we're the same age, forty seven, so uh, we could still pass the PT exam. But if you look at like the general population, most people are out of shape, right? And then you look at EMTs. I love them, you know, like I'm extremely grateful for them. But why are so many out of shape? You're going to start getting some hate emails, man. I'm too <laughs> Prove me wrong. That's I, what I, I tell, tell no, them. Prove I, me wrong. You're a hundred, hundred, hundred percent spot on. I think it goes back to the lifestyle. You're out there, you know, you're, you're drinking these rich coffees and I still see EMT smoking actual cigarettes, right? not vapes, not whatever. Like, I, who does, who does that? I know. I know. I was a bit of an anomaly as I kind of still am in, in, in my level of fitness, but I mean, you're right. I mean, you're, you're spot on. I think, I think it goes back to the trauma, mm. you know, that job weathers you. Quickly. I've seen a lot of stuff as a cop, but I'm telling you the damage from doing full-time EMS stuff. There's guys I worked with that are still doing it. Mm. And, and to your point, they're, they're hurting. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, I, I, I get saddened. Um, if anyone is an EMT and they'd like to get in shape and they live on Long Island, I will work with you for free. I will link up with you and uh, you can reach out to me, find me through the show and I will work with you. That is a serious, sincere offer. Um, I get saddened when I see people that are like, they're out there serving people. So my other half is a nurse as, as we spoke about. And, uh, you know, she says it saddens her when she sees doctors out front smoking yeah, or, or like really, really out of shape. And they're giving advice to someone who's on diabetes medicine or, uh, you know, heart medicine and, and they're out of shape themselves. Like they're one cheeseburger away from a heart attack themselves. <laughs> it's like, ah, it's frust it's frustrating. And to your point, I actually think it's cultural, right? Yeah. Like the culture of EMS, the culture of fire, the like. There's just something about, um, I don't know. I mean, I, like everybody I knew back then smoked cigarettes outside. I never really smoked. That was never really my thing. But I, everybody I worked with did. Now, cops in fitness, like they're not much better than EMTs. <laughs> they're a little bit they're a little bit better percentage wise but i wouldn't say they're not much better it i guess it depends departmentally so where i am uh, i'm a, a medium-sized department just over 100 guys okay um i would say the vast majority of my coworkers are are younger and they're fit whether they're yes. doing crossfit whether well the young guys the young guys with less than 10 years on they're all fit uh, a lot of them now are in the gym and doing jujitsu and, you know, training and boxing, whatever it is they're doing CrossFit. Like you said, I, I would say the, what was it? The Z generation, generation Z or millennials. Millennials are a lot more. I, I think it's, I think it's Instagram really. <laughs> I, the, I think it's, it's social all media. living at home. <laughs> yeah, they're living at home because they can't afford a house. Prices are so ridiculously high. But um, I think it's the fact that they're posting constantly that they're uh, more health conscious. Yeah. I, I would say the younger generation is definitely more health con conscious than our generation. Yeah, I would agree. Right? You agree I, would, with that? I would agree wholeheartedly. I would agree. So, yeah, percentage wise, the younger generation, they are definitely keeping themselves fit. Um, let's talk about the 40 year olds. <laughs> how many how many do you see um you know what what unit are you in now uh right now i'm actually the uh high school police resource officer with my department. all right hold one second yeah zoom so uh, you, I was asking, what unit are you in now? I'm the police resource officer at our, our town's high school. Okay. So how did you, well, before I get into how you landed there, how did you even go from uh, EMT, EMS to police officer? So, so it goes right back to that. Never was even in my plan. I was taking the fire department test and what was happening was I wasn't scoring high enough. Like I wasn't getting to that top tier to get past, you know, into that spot. I want to say there was one where I was just on the outside and it was so frustrating. So I said to a buddy of mine, I'm like, you know, these police tests and the fire tests are pretty similar. 
So I'm going to start taking some police tests to try to like get better at taking the test so I could get the job on the fire department. And I got the job. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, and I always like to say, and once you got the job, did you stop taking fire tests at that point? A hundred percent. I was all in. Here's what I will say. When I got the job, I remember my parents were like, I'm sorry, what? You know, like, wait, because they knew, you know, but, um, I loved the structure of the police academy. And I loved the brotherhood that like that fraternity of blue that I had, that I had entered because really in my whole life, I had never really been part of a team. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't play sports that much growing up. I was, I did a lot of solo stuff, whether it was skateboarding, snowboarding. I did a lot of it where it was just me. So outside of the band, when I was, you know, a rock star, (laughs) but outside of the band, I never had been part of something like bigger than yourself. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I dove straight in and that was i got hired six months almost to the day after 9 11. wow so when you think back to that time period you know a lot is a lot has changed in policing especially people's views towards it you know oh my god when you came on so i got on in 98 and um the the feeling towards police was like uh it was we were just starting to you know, gain the public's trust, gain the public's trust. And then 9-11 happened and it was like, we love cops. We freaking love you. <laughs> yep. You're our hero. Thank you for serving our community. <laughs> and that lasted for about, I would say, 10, good 10 years. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that feeling, that feeling after 9-11 and patriotism and just, you know, understanding that uh, we're public servants and people just like, heaping on the praise and loving us right and yeah. then fast forward 20 years oh, yeah. <laughs> what a change what man one one crazy incident can change um the entire country huh it can it can yeah and we're gonna dive deeper into the stuff i've been working on but i think to a certain degree we got comfortable yeah in that 10 years we got comfortable with the yeah. love in. And then things started to happen. There ended up being a shift. And now we're like, wait, but wait a minute. I thought you liked us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still a good guy. I'm still a good guy. Wait, wait, I'm still a good guy. <laughs> so the vast majority of my police career has been boots on the ground. I'm a frontline guy. Um, I never, for the longest time, I struggled. To, I shouldn't say I struggled, but I never really found my niche. So there were guys much like yourself. I know you've mentioned before another one, you know, another podcast that you wanted to be, uh, you know, into narcotics and there's gun people and traffic investigations and detective work and all sorts of stuff. And I dabbled in a little bit of all of that, but there wasn't that one piece uh, that I really identified with until about 10 years into my career. And really it was when things went a little haywire in my own personal life. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of, First responders, like a lot of cops, you know, I ended up getting a divorce. Show me a cop and I'll show you someone who's been divorced. Right. Oh, God, I thought I beat that statistic. <laughs> so, you know, it, but it wasn't only that, you know, I had some children. I have a, a daughter with some medical issues. I mean, I just, there was a lot coming in and kind of what I started to get from that was that as cops, we were good at getting the bad guy. We were good at investigations. We were good. We were damn good at what we did. But the more I worked with the public and the more I listened to the public, I started to get a sense that they didn't feel that we cared. 
they, it, there was more of a sense of this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. Almost, you know, just the facts man type situation. And I, th I think, and I, don't, I shouldn't even say, I think I know that that's where we were missing it. We were missing it in, let's call them the soft skills. Now, when I say that, I know people want to throw tomatoes at me, right? Soft skills, everything else. But those soft skills are so important. And when you, when you start going through stuff in your, pers your own personal life, you start to realize it's not just us in policing, by the way. It's everywhere. It's people. We miss where people are emotionally. So what I started to do is I kind of, I don't want to say, I stopped playing the role of what I believed a cop to be. And I just unapologetically became myself. And what I mean by that is I started to humanize every single call I went on. And what I did was I focused on the emotion behind the call because emotion drives behavior. Emotion is driving all of our behaviors. And if, if we go on a call and we're too into that mindset of an investigation and we missed that emotion, it actually makes it more dangerous for us. Now, I know sometimes some pushback will be, oh, it's, you're, it's too soft. I'm not talking about officer safety issues, or right? Tactics, office, tactics, yeah, none of, right. none of that. I'm just talking about acknowledging where someone's at emotionally. And when you do that, you actually become safer. So it's not, you know, take your gum belt off and have a cup of coffee. But I mean, it's, you know, it's actually acknowledging what somebody is going through because, you know, it, us, healthcare, I don't care what industry you're in. When you do something every day, you get kind of transactional, kind of what I can do, what I can't do. And people feel it. People really feel that. I mean, think about all the car accidents you take in a parking lot and, you know, minor damage and instantly you're going, what? Well, it's private property. I can't really, you know, license, register, insurance, license, register, but you miss. What's it like to be in a car accident? Yep. What are you late for? Are, is this a leased car? Like there's so many pieces to a car accident or a credit card fraud. Or a domestic dispute. But you handle it every single day. So it's just like, ah, blah, blah, blah. Same, and, you know, same yes. thing every day for you. Yes. And it's easy to get drawn into that. And I'm not saying I'm above it. I'm not. But I'm just super aware of it now. So what, what, what began to happen was when I started policing that way, I started to build a reputation for being able to work with some of the more challenging or difficult people to deal with. You so what, a niche. Oh yeah. And that's, and it was like, it was serendipitous because I wasn't even like trying, but like people would call me places and be like, can you, can you work with this family? I can't deal with this guy. You know, I got to book this guy and he's spitting at me. Can you deal with this guy? And honestly, it would, it all came down to, you know, from a human level, what's it feel like to be in this position? And it's not justifying bad behaviors. It's not justifying behaviors at all. It's just understanding what's behind them to get, frankly, the job done. But if you're going to do this effectively, you can't bullshit people because you know as well as I do, people who are going through some stuff, their skill set is super high and they could sniff out fakeness all day long. So if it's genuine and you practice this stuff on the small calls, when you have these bigger calls or these bigger incidents or, or just an absolutely emotional mess that you're trying to deal with, you know, it makes it, it makes it easier to do. We deal with uh, so many emotions from people on a day in day out basis. I told you uh, when I first got on, 
I worked in a high school as a security guard uh, to make some extra money, paid bills. And uh, I was only 24 years old. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of 17 and 18 year old girls flirting with me. And I was like, ah, this is a bad situation. I'm going to get myself jammed <laughs> up. So I got out of there as quickly as possible. Then I worked in a hospital uh, yeah. doing security. And uh, I saw the first time someone came in that was acting kind of like, you know, emotionally disturbed. I said, all right. I'm going to get myself jammed up here too. So I got to get out of here. <laughs> well, you know, to that point, um, that's another home that I found. So in Connecticut, we have a thing called CIT, which is crisis intervention teams. And what it is, is it's a week long, 40 hour class on all sorts of stuff re relating to mental health and dealing with calls for mental illness. That's, that's the basis of CIT is going out and responding to calls for mental mental health issues. But what I started to find was that, or, you know, in the direction I go in these training classes is let's get away from, this is just another tool for your tool belt. Because I always say, if you don't use that tool very often. How effective are you going to be? Right. So if you're only using rapport building skills and emotional labeling and all these things on, on mental health calls, yeah, I mean, it's going to be effective because it is. But I'm telling you, people could sniff that stuff out. And if I'm going through something harsh and I, I feel you're giving me some kind of lines, I'm, I'm going to push back on you. So I began, you know, really going deeper into crisis in general, never mind a mental health issue. How about just a crisis? Let me give you an example. And I don't normally use myself as an example, but I, I will because this really paints the picture here. So a couple of years ago, my, my daughter got really sick. At the time, she was 12, and she had epilepsy since age four, but she was really, really sick, and we, we didn't know what was wrong with her. I mean, she, and I don't like to use this word, but I'm going to use it. She looked almost cancerous. She was very pale. Her eyes were sunken in her head. She had no appetite. She wasn't sleeping right. She was acting very differently, and at the time, my son, because this is what we do as, as parents, right? My son was just starting to play organized football. And he was getting a lot of attention and we were going to games. And I started to think, wow, is my, is my daughter pushing back? She, you know, she's not getting the attention. And then part of me was like, well, she's 12. Maybe she started to go through that. Like just, I started to write the story that I wanted to believe about what was happening, but she was sick. So mom and I end up in the emergency room. So they bring us into the room. They start doing the test. And next thing you know, the doctor comes in and she says, Mr. Brewer, can, can you and mom, can you come with me? I'm going to leave the social worker here to stay with your daughter. Now, just feel that moment. Your heart drops. Your heart drops, especially in our industry. You know right where this is going, right? So they bring us into this, like, we'll call it a family grieving room. Even though it wasn't labeled as such, it had the feeling, right? So they bring us in there. What do they do? They leave us in there alone and they shut the door. Oh, my God. Right. So my ex-wife at the time, she had nothing to do with law enforcement. She had nothing to do with, with our industry. She was a writer. She's a professor. This is not her wheelhouse. Both of us are like looking at each other. Now I'm starting to just drip in divorced dad wounds. Right. So now we've been divorced for a while and now I'm doing the whole, I'm a horrible person. It's just shame and guilt. I mean, just, you know, it's awful. Yeah. Right. So now the doctor comes in. And said, okay, we ran some tests. 
And it turns out that your daughter is a type one diabetic. Her sugar's almost 900. That's not so bad as cancer. <laughs> Thank you for that response, right? So to that point, to that point, I'm so glad you said that. So my initial response was yes, right? Yes. I'm like, I can deal with diabetes, right? right? It's right. not cancer. It's not a tumor. Oh my God. My ex-wife's response. I'm not even kidding you. She goes, oh my God. She's never going to be able to get a driver's license. No one's going to take her to the prom. And I don't, and I say that, I don't say that to pick on her because neither of us were right. It no. was just a, a traumatic response. Yes. So that's where we were in that moment. I'm over here going, oh man, I'm not glad about the diabetes, but I could deal with it. She's over here going, oh my God, no one's going to take her to the prom. <laughs> like, so those are two different trauma responses to one delivered piece of information. But here's why I share this example. And it's not that the nurses and doctors weren't nice. They were wonderful. But right away, instead of allowing us to process that information, instead of realizing this is really traumatic for these people because they do that every day, right away, the doctor, I don't know if she was a doctor, nurse, whatever, but she goes, and you know what? There's so many technological advances since the 80s that juvenile diabetes these days, it's really, you know, you get this. And she's trying to like sell me on how great diabetes is, you know, and all the great things. I wasn't ready for it. Yep. I wasn't ready for it. Yep. I was, I, I'm sitting here going. You're processing. Processing going. Yeah. My daughter has to get blood drawn every six months for her epilepsy. And she passes out out of fear. And that's only twice a year. Now you're telling me she has to stick herself multiple days for the rest of her life. And I have to walk into that room and tell her that. I mean, like that for me, like that was, that was where the doctor they missed it. That was a missed moment. And I, again, I don't, I'm not mad at them for that, but how about that's a lot of information. I'm going to let you guys process that when you're ready, you let me know. And I can tell you everything that you need to know, giving us some sense of control. Yes. And that's a lot of what, you know, the trainings that I do now, I talk about giving people some sense they have some control, even if it's the illusion of control, like you're dealing with, let's say a bad guy, right? If you give him the illusion, he has some level of control. It becomes less of a fight. Mm, so I look, I look at that in at that situation, David, I, I wasn't a mental health crisis, right? My ex-wife yep. wasn't a mental health, but the situation was a crisis. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's a really good example. That's uh, so are you a trainer? I am. You are. Yes. Yep. How I, long I, have you been doing that? So I've been training, started out in Connecticut in 2018. Uh, now moved into uh, Rhode Island. I teach for the CIT Academy in Rhode Island. So for all my friends and family out there, cops in Rhode Island, CIT is new out there. Started about two years ago. If you're working for a PD and you have an opportunity to take uh, the CIT Academy of Rhode Island, I come out on the Friday. We have an amazing time. You'll learn a lot. Uh, you really immerse yourself in it. So, you know, please come out. Did you see uh, Ernie and Joe crisis cop? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So is that, to, is that like required watch for, uh, Oh, it's so it, it, it should be. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's funny. You should bring that up. So that's really where my career started to take that transition. So getting that, um, getting that name of being the go-to guy for these types of things I was on a call once and you know, these calls, man, I'm on a call and a coworker said to me just off the cuff, they're like, you know, Jer, 
somebody should create a position for you that like you're like the responding guy for all this stuff. Now, they said this before Ernie and Dave came out, right? So it was like Ernie that. and Joe. Yeah, Ernie and Joe. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like the light bulb over my head, just like, huh, somebody should do that. And you know what? It's going to be me. Yeah. So my wife now who works in the business world, I came home and I said to her, I said, look, I, this is what I want to do. So she's like, don't rush it. Here's what we're going to do. Because you know, so many people in law enforcement, it would have been, oh, send the chief an email and see if you could do it, right? Yeah. So she's like, let's put together a professional business proposal. You tell me everything you want to do. And I'm like, well, I'll be the first responding officer to mental health issues. I'll deal with death notifications. I'll deal with basically any situation in the community where there was emotion, I was going to go. And she said, well, it sounds to me like you want to be a crisis services liaison officer. (laughs) And I was like, bingo. So we worked together and we put together this like 15 page document. It had data, it had all sorts of stuff on it. And I gave it to my administration and they sent me an email instantly. And they were like, this is like a business proposal, you know? <laughs> so they put it forth to our town council. Cause you know, did you put went, a budget? Did you put a budget included too? I do. Oh yeah, man. We had yeah. line items in there about all the money it was going to save or all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they ended up giving me this position and I had a unmarked car. And I would respond with mobile crisis units and I would arrange follow-up visit with mobile crisis units. I was the first responder to basically anything emotional. I was like a fly car. I just, uh, what came to mind when you were mentioning that was, um, you're responding to an increased number of emotionally charged calls, uh, it almost seems as if you're putting yourself in increased danger. Because like, say, say an average cop goes to X amount of, you know, emotionally charged calls, you're going to all of them. So like what came to mind for me was you have to be really, really careful tactically. Um, Was there ever a situation where you felt like this, this has potential to be really, really dangerous? (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the one, the one takeaway, you know, as well as I do you start to deal with the same people. Mm-hmm. So just because let's say Dan was one way on a Monday and I have a great rapport with him, doesn't mean Dan's ready for me on Wednesday. Right. When we go to do the follow-up. So I was always very aware, very, very, very aware. I, there was a, an incident once where mobile crisis and I went to check on a guy because we were being told he, he wasn't current on his medication and he came to the door like literally carrying this massive, massive knife. Oh my God. And it was one of those glass doors where you could see. Yeah. And he I'm we were 25 feet away and he's screaming at me, shoot me, shoot me. You're gonna have to shoot me. The only way you come in here is suicide by cop. Either you die or I die and oh everything my else. God. And I looked at mobile crisis and I'm like, you know what? Let's lift them to fight another day. And because literally the days of us, because traditionally what? We call they, it they call e, ES, ES, and ES would charge the door and, yep. and take and them out to the hospital. A hundred percent. And I remember my coworker looked at me like I was nuts because I'm like, listen, I've dealt with this guy before. He, right now he's drunk. He's in his apartment. He's not hurt, hurting anybody. He's not threatening to harm himself. The only person he's threatening to harm is me if I try to enter. I'm like, so you know what? I'll see you later. And he I've uh, I've heard of things in the news where the person was 
a threat to anyone that came in and you know they forced entry and then unfortunately that person was killed yep. and uh i don't mean to laugh about it because it's tragic but um you know in hindsight it's 2020 like sometimes cooler heads prevail like if you think like you said if there's no one in there and he's not a threat to anyone let him sleep it off yep let him and sleep he it called off. me the next day and left me a voicemail on my cell phone i'm really sorry man i was drunk i wasn't in my right mind thanks you might have that. saved you might have saved his life by not calling es and not calling more units to come and kick in his door and take him off to the hospital you know you might have saved that guy's life because who knows once once a lot of cops show up and emotions are high and this yeah. guy runs out and he says i want to die by a cop who knows what's going to happen at that point you're right and, and my big thing is slowing everything down slowing everything down because as soon as you start rushing on stuff as soon as you get in too close then you're in a spot right Distance, so like, distance yeah. and time are always on our side. Uh, usually, usually, you know, yeah. like if, if we can slow things down and think about it and get distance, distance is what saves us. Yeah. A hundred percent. So these are all, you know, the things that uh, I, you know, I focus on in the trainings. Again, when I do training, I, I keep it as real as could be. I'm, I'm far from a check the box guy. I try to bring in, realistic stuff. Hey, sometimes this works. Hey, guess what? Sometimes it doesn't. At the end of the day, we're still cops. At the end of the day, sometimes we still have to fight with people. At the end of the day, people still get arrested. Yes. <laughs> right? Like that's just the, the the work we're in. So I always try to make sure I say that because sometimes people get in the weeds of, oh, you're like a social worker. Nah, man. Sometimes you can use, you know, empathy in a tactical way. I wouldn't say to do it all the time because then it comes across as false but if there's those times like where you need to, to use it you know it, from a tactical perspective you can i um i'm gonna respect your time so i only got like five more minutes with you and i just want to ask you what's next do you know how many more years you're gonna put in what's what's uh what's next in your career what's next in my career well you know i i've always i always leave the door open because I never intended on being a high school cop. So I had this, this crisis gig that I was rolling for a while. And then there was an opening in our high school. And so you'll appreciate this. My boss said to me one day, Hey, can you do me a favor? Can you just like swing in and say hi to the principal just so she could see your face? Like, right. And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. Sure. He goes, just until we fill it. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. So I get in there and I go into the principal's office and she says to me, I'm so glad we have a cop in the school again. I found out from the principal that uh -huh. I got that job. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> like that? But I'll tell you this. Uh, my, my very first day in there, my very first day. Now I have kids, but I never worked in a school of 2000. Yep. You can't even make this up. I ended up negotiating with a kid with a loaded 45 who barricaded himself in a copier room. Oh my God. And day one. Day one. And I was a trained crisis negotiator. I mean, this was my, my, this is my wheelhouse, right? So I ended up negotiating with him for about 45 minutes, almost an hour. He came out peacefully and, you know, came out in tears and, you know, we had to do what we had to do. I have but one piece of advice for you. If you can turn that into a book, 
That is your story right there. Because that's a that's a day one story. All of your experience as a crisis intervention, like oh. that is crazy. Uh, do you guys have hostage negotiation team yeah. in your department? You do? Yeah, we do. Yep. Did they get involved in that? So I already had a rapport going with them and I'm on the team. So they just kind of left me alone. Oh, you're already on the team. Okay. I was already, yeah, I'm already on the team. So it yeah. kind of worked out for, I believe, and I will say this, not from a religious place, from a spiritual place. I have come to find in my 20 years that I was on the calls I was meant to be on. And I don't mean it from a cocky, like, oh, I was the impact. It's the impact those calls had on me. I learned a lifetime of information from that kid with that loaded 45, all these calls I've gone on, they've taught me all these experiences I used in training or that I even used when I gave that Ted talk, all of that came from what someone taught me about how to be better. I'm so glad you mentioned the Ted talk because I almost let that slip through my fingers. I would have had to do a part two with you because (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to talk about Ted so bad because as you know, I'm a speaker and, um, you know, I've done different things around speaking. I spoke to uh, community organizations for a long time. I was in that community unit for like 10 years. So I've spoken to small groups of people, you know, a dozen here, two dozen there. And the largest group of people I ever spoke in front of live was 250 and then maybe a, another 200 online. Uh, that's the largest group. A TED Talk is another level. You know, it's like, Everyone respects Ted. Uh, not everyone has seen a TED Talk before. I, I've talked to people. I'm like, you ever watch TED Talks? And they're like, no, what's that? I'm like, oh, my God. Not <laughs> believe, TED Talk believe me, I get it. A lot of my coworkers, when I got it, they had no idea what I was talking about. Right. Like, like 80%. Right. But if you're in the speaking world, yeah. you know what a TED Talk is. Yeah. And you've done two? Yeah. Any plans, for, any plans for doing a third or a fourth? Oh, listen, I would love it. I mean, to be involved in that that level of, of engagement is incredible. It, listen, my, my journey through Ted and TEDx Hartford is it's a whole nother podcast. I mean, that is a whole nother situation, but my love is training. My love is speaking. My love is getting out there and engaging with the community in any way possible. I, what I actually really learned to love was speaking to 400 seventh and eighth graders at an assembly. Oh my God. When you're in an assembly and you can just get these kids making noise, screaming and yelling, counting off push-ups that I'm doing in the middle. But here's the funny thing. So I'll share this with you quick. I know we're getting low on time. I took a chance a couple of years ago and it really worked out for me. So my department asked, Hey, would you mind talking to the incoming seventh grade class? So I said, what do you want me to talk about? Well, they're like, I don't know, becoming a cop. So I show up and it, by the way, it was like 200 people, not a class of 50, like I thought. <laughs> but, so I get there and I'm like, so I, so I put it back on the students. So I came out and I said, let me ask you a question. So what do you guys think I'm going to talk about? And you get the usual stuff, you know, oh, active shooter. Oh, shooting people. Yeah. Shooting people. Like yeah. That. And I'm like, okay. I go, look, we could talk about all those things. I got no problem with that. I said, or would you rather talk about the time I got arrested when I was a juvenile? And the, the room goes crazy, right? Because <laughs> there I am in a, in a full police uniform and I shared the experience about the time I got jammed up as a juvenile. 
That is a great story for those kids. Man, you chose the right one. Oh, man. You know, I almost let this podcast go without bringing up the fact that you're a powerful, powerful speaker. Like, (laughs) that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast. It's because of your ability to tell a story, your ability to hold people's attention like if and i'm going to tell anyone that uh if that's listening to go on to youtube search out jeremy brewer and what's the title of your two talks that are on there so if you just go on ted.com and backslash jeremy brewer and it brings it right up it's a strategy for connecting to others and then if you go to tedx hartford that one is uh the power of the pause and it talks about slowing down and implicit bias and a couple of other issues that way but just to cap off the thing about the, the seventh and eighth graders, you know, in sharing that experience, I make it a story about empathy and about who was, who was impacted. What did it feel like to hurt my mother? You know, and I ask kids, anybody here ever make your mom cry? Right. Mm. And everybody's arm goes up in the audience. And I'm like, how does that feel? And these yeah. are seventh and eighth graders. Like, Ooh, right. Yeah. So I, I talk about the community service I did. And, you know, I re- when I do this stuff and I'm not afraid to put race on the table is a white uniform cop. I put race on the table with these kids. And you know what? They That's were scary. Exactly, oh, so you should see the teachers. They look at me like, oh my God. <laughs> They're like, he's really going there. Yeah. Yep. You know what? If you want any respect, you got to be real. Yeah. And I put it on the table and I, I said, look, I'm a white uniform cop. And to some of you kids, that can mean different things. Yep. And what I'm here to do today is to help build that trust, to help build a relationship with you. And to talk about what, what is it like when somebody that looks like me does something bad? What, if, what impact does that have on me and what I'm trying to do out here? So, you know, there's all always learning points to, to all these pieces. And I think talking to kids, I, I would have never imagined that it would have been as amazing as it was. Cause I now, did, did you get, dirt. did you get the blessing from your job to wear the uniform on, was it your job that sent you there or yeah. was it, or was it you that sent yourself there? It was originally uh, the town I worked for. They were like, hey, go speak at this summer camp. And then it became like a private school reached out to me. So you'll appreciate this. A really kind of uh, expensive private school in Connecticut reached out to me. And they were like, hey, you know, would you mind coming? I said, listen, I have a product that's worked for me in the public school arena. (laughs) uh, I just want to give you a heads up where I go. And they welcomed me and they loved it. They were like, nobody talks to our kids like the way you talk to our kids, man. They're like, they loved you. But to to your point, I did have to get authorization from my PD. Like, hey, would you mind if I did this? And my PD, they know who I am. They know my character. You know, they know I'm never the guy that uses profanity. I'm always appropriate. And it's always bigger than me. It's always about the message. And like any PD, they want to look good. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> as long as as long as you're saying the right things and you're not the uh what's the word that I'm looking for? You're not it's not controversial to the point where it's a problem. Right. right I tap right. dance on a couple things, but I mean it's not it's just being real. And I think I've never gotten really any flack for it. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. you represent your department very well. Um I got five quick questions for you just to cap this off and then uh we'll definitely do a part two and we'll get more into ted another day yeah. uh what's how do you define a hero man i'll tell you it somebody who goes above the level of their normal expectation 
especially when nobody's watching. You're not doing it for awards or accolades. You're just doing it. I love that. I, uh, I spoke to an army ranger, uh, commander that I met down in Costa Rica. And the first time I asked him to go on the show, he's like, ah, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I told him the name of the show and he's like, Oh no, no, no. We definitely not going to do that. He's like, if you're going to talk about me being a hero and I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, that's not what it's about. It's not, I'm like, I'm never going to call you a hero. I'm, I'm not going to, it's it's called the Hero Academy because it's um it's what society calls heroes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but I I I'm not gonna put that label on you and 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 then he finally agreed. Once I told him my backstory, he, he said, All right, I'll come on your show. Hey, you know what? You know what convinced him? Actually, I was walking the beach in the morning and I found a pair of Gucci sunglasses. And then uh I'm like, oh, somebody lost these. And I was going to ask the group that I was traveling with if anyone lost them. And uh, I just connected with him, just happened to run across them. I sat them down on the table and he looked down and he's like, I have a pair of sunglasses just like that. And I said, I found these on the beach this morning. And then he tried to give them to me. And I'm like, I'm like, nope, absolutely not. I'm like, I got sunglasses. I'm like, these are yours. I said, I'm a great finder of things. And he said, you know what? I'll come on your podcast. Wow. And that's a true, that's a true story because uh, he's, he's like big into yoga and he believes in karma and, and he's a tough, tough guy. He's like a, you know, like he looks just like David Goggins. He sounds like he's very, very intense. Like he's uh he's like six one and shredded. And like, you look at that guy and you're like, I don't want to mess with that guy. <laughs> and, and, and he's the nicest, nicest human being, but he's very, very intense and mm-hmm. very intimidating. And that that act of of uh, selflessness and that act of, hey, I'm not looking for them to become mine. I'm happy I found them for you. Yep. That that won me his his trust, and that won that won that won a guest. You know, that won a guest over. That he, he didn't he didn't like the name of he did not like the name of the podcast. And I'm like, hey, it's not about I'm like, it's not about that. It's it's just about you. Mm-hmm. It's just about you. And um that goes back to that. It's like a spiritual moment. Like that was meant to happen. Yes. Just, it was meant to happen. It's incredible. I, I love hearing stuff like that. Thank you. And I'm I'm just so grateful that we that we got to spend this this hour together. Um Second question, when stress is at its highest and you're starting to feel uh, like you're at your breaking point, how do you save yourself and how do you show yourself love? I do stuff outside of policing. So my wife and I are actually in a, uh, I'll call it a beer, volleyball, sand volleyball league. That's awesome. So every, every, I play volleyball too. No, I love it. Right. There's a ski area not far from me that, that puts up these awesome things and every Thursday and we hang out and most people we do it with are like 20 years younger than us. Yep. Yep. (laughs) So it pulls me out of that negativity. Also the stuff with, again, I'll go back to Ted. I mean, you know, I'm a speaker coach now for TEDx Hartford and you know, I'm always working on new material, new ideas. I'm I'm helping other people I know that speak at conferences where they're like, hey, listen, I got a, a keynote coming up. Do you think you could take a look at what I did? Do you have any thoughts? So a lot like diving. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to work with you on, on that front because uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. We're running short on time. So I was going to ask you actually if you would ever consider offering coaching as an additional stream of income outside of like uh, what you already do, just like 
you know, being a coach for first responders or just coaching in general? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. That, that window is, is definitely wide open because I live for this stuff. I believe in it. I, I believe in you. I, I actually believe that you are a phenomenal coach and that's why I can't wait to work with you. But what's <laughs> your, what's your best ability is my fourth question for you. Uh, communication. Communication. That is a powerful, powerful, like that's, that's, I want to be like you when I grow up <laughs> and for fun. If you had a comic superpower, what would it be and why? Comic book superpower. Man, it would have to be something surfing. I would like to have a comic guy that just surfed. I've never like surfed. Sil- like the Silver Surfer. Yeah, like the Silver Surfer. Yes. Like yeah, yeah. Lines. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. You're, you're the first person. Uh, usually people give me the stuff that's like traditional, like uh, invisibility speed, teleportation. You're the first person to say, uh, and I don't surf either, but that, that would be pretty cool. Like yeah. you could surf anything. Oh my God. Just gliding across the water all fast like that. It's amazing. Or just, or even gliding across the stars, like the way the silver surfer does. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. that That's pretty cool. Um, I I'm looking forward to hanging out with you in person yeah. live. Uh, we'll link up at an event somewhere. I, I know that for sure. And we'll so. definitely stay in touch. Um, you are now my friend for life and uh-huh. I appreciate this time connecting with you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. I love to give people their roses while they're still alive. And um, you are a true servant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith, the number one. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.